Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Lisa, as we go to a bond guy, and I think, you know, this is a true story, folks. I'm on the floor of Bear Stearns a million years ago, and John Riding Lease is ready to go on. And just before we cut to live, somebody screamed out at John, John! Price up, yield down. And <laughs> yeah. of course, the whole place erupted in laughter as we went live. I yeah. mean, nobody's laughing now, are they? No, Greg Peters is somebody who's <clears throat> gotten the bond market right again and again, as well as yeah. all of PGM Fixed Income. He's head of multi-sector and strategy there. And you've been calling, Greg, for this decline in yields, or at least a stasis where we are, despite some of the uh, inflated uh, expectations earlier in the year for inflation. Here we are at a precipice where bulls on Wall Street cannot get bullish enough about equities, where bond, uh, bond veterans are looking at the bond yields here and saying they're not going to move that much. Do you think that people could be surprised by bond yields going lower being a bear case for equities? Yeah, I think that's a distinct possibility. It's not my base case by any stretch. Um, I actually think we're in this symbiotic relationship where low yields really allow equities to outperform, right? It's uh, not only the discounting mechanism that's much lower, so you know, pushing up valuations, but it's just a, a low stable yield environment uh, is just broadly supportive of growth, broadly, broadly supportive of earnings, uh, and should be broadly supportive of risk assets. So I actually see the two actually pretty much aligned here. But I think your question ultimately is, if the bond market really starts to sense and suss out a a rolling over of economic activity, then that's clearly uh, not a great outlook for uh, stocks. If Jay Powell uh, this Friday at his speech at the virtual uh, Jackson Hole Symposium comes out and forecasts or foretells a, an earlier taper than the market is expecting, says November rather than December, as most people seem to expect, what's the reaction in markets? I don't know. I, I, I mean, personally, I don't think a month matters. I, I mean, if the markets are that sensitive around November versus December, then I just think it's kind of looking for an excuse to uh, take some chips off the table. So I'm not overly worried about it. That's my personal expectation that uh, the Fed starts to taper in November, maybe December. Uh, but either way, they're tapering. Uh, 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 and then equally, I'm not as uh, jammed up over a taper as some other folks, uh, just given the fact that you're seeing this massive shrinking uh, in Treasury supply at the same time. Greg, uh, part of the stresses that are out there now is historic liquidity. Every morning I look at overnight repo. We've now gone out over a trillion. We're grinding higher. I've got experts telling me it's no big deal. But how does the wall of money that's out there fold into the PGM yield? How does it fold into the simple idea that we want to observe and guess where yield is going? Yeah, I think the technical dynamics are important here. Uh, typically, I don't think it um, changes the direction, but I think it exacerbates the move. Uh, uh, and so that's why I'm focused on uh, Treasury supply uh, going forward, as I think the fact that you're going to see a, a decline in Treasury supply next year and several years after, I think is highly supportive. Uh, 
At the same time, you know, the U.S. is winning by not losing, right? So the fact that you're seeing so much foreign investment into the U.S., right. into the bond market is also support. So I think these are really supportive factors. But ultimately, it does does point the, the fundamental piece. And so I think fundamentals are the driver. I think the technical is right. just... Uh, uh, just exacerbated. I, I don't want you to make a sell side bracketed ten year call, but I do. You know, as a guy <laughs> running institutional money, with that belief on liquidity and on uh, treasury supply, bracket the ten year yield as you see it now, a year out or two years out. Yeah. So I think our level, uh, you know, two years forward is about eighty basis points on the ten year. Uh, our call for the end of this year was 120 basis points. Um, so we're in striking distance. Yeah, that's That felt wonderful. like a terrible call in the first quarter, Tom. I have to be honest with you. You it aged. Was, uh, quite painful. Uh, uh, yeah, I did. Um, so, but I think longer term, uh, you know, we see an environment where yields will remain low. Uh, uh, and honestly, I, I struggle with the narrative that yields are going to jump post-Fed taper post-economic activity that's off the charts, peak inflation, all those sorts of things are in the rear view. And to me, I just don't really see an environment where yields, after all that's been thrown at the market, that yields will, will move higher after the fact. If it doesn't happen during, then, uh, then I'd be shocked to see it happen after the fact. I know that in about four and a half hours time or so, Tom Keene is going to be awakening from his nap, eagerly watching the two-year treasury auction we're getting at 1 p.m. Eastern time. He cannot wait, neither can Lisa. When it comes to these auctions and the supply and who is buying, how do you think about foreign buyers in the treasury market? Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, I mean we've been seeing it, uh, particularly as we get closer to taper, whether it's November or December or January, who knows? The, uh, the fact that you're seeing um, uh, foreign buyers uh, increase their purchase power within uh, the U.S. Treasury market is important, right? So I do think that's a strong technical factor. So I expect that to continue. But I try not to get overly uh, taxed by a single auction event. Hmm. But I think, you know, over time, though, uh, you'll continue to see uh, the auctions do quite well. Foreign, foreign uh, participation would be quite high uh, and uh, auctions would go quite well. And of course, the U.S. in many ways is attractive because it's still the highest yield you can get in basically sovereign bond markets globally. And if, even if you expect yields to be staying lower when it comes to Treasury yields, is that still going to remain true? Yeah, I think so. It's a relative game. We play a relative game. So we're looking at uh, where yields are uh, in Europe. We look at where yields are in Japan. And the U.S. Uh, by far uh, has the most attractive yield environment. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. I don't think anyone is forecasting European yields to uh, move above zero uh, uh, anywhere uh, over the near term or ever. Uh, so um, I really uh, think the support for U.S. Treasuries, U.S. assets, period, will continue mm -hmm. to be quite strong, which is why I think the dollar will continue to do quite well yeah. uh, here. Uh, which is somewhat uh, against consensus or was against consensus. Greg, before we let you go, I want to ask a philosophical question. 
As we talk about the Fed and their ongoing $120 billion of asset purchases every month at a time of rising inequality, at a time of inflated asset prices, at a time uh, when a lot of people are saying that corporate profits are as good as they're ever going to get and will, conti or will continue to accelerate from here because of their dominance over <coughs> specific sectors. Is this bond purchasing program more helpful than it is harmful at this point? That's a great question. Uh, uh, clearly, inequality uh, is something uh, that has worsened. Uh, is worsened um, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, right? You're creating the wealth effect. Central bank policy is a blunt instrument. This whole portfolio channel effect, whereby raising uh, asset prices to increase kind of spending at all to trickle down, hasn't really worked that well. So I think the Fed's focus will continue to be around getting real wages higher. So for me, the focus uh, is less on asset prices, but getting real wages higher. And I think that's the most important piece of the puzzle here to solve, not only in the U.S., but globally, uh, as inequality has really uh, worsened quite dramatically here over the past 12 to 18 months. Gregory Peters, thank you so much with PGM, head of a multi-sector uh, strategy there. Really interesting conversation. I guess this is the point where we begin a look back. It's September 11th. There are those that have younger children explaining to their younger children exactly what was September 11th. And to many of us, it is a collective memory. Everyone will pontificate. Only Foreign Affairs gives us wonderful expert opinion across a wonderful cross-section. Who won the war on terror? I really can't say enough about this. Daniel Kurtzfalen joining us, driving on the legacy of all that have done foreign affairs. It, folks, an annual subscription, I believe, is a price of an overpriced martini at an overpriced restaurant. Uh, throw it at your offspring and say, shut up and read this. Daniel, congratulations. Ben Rhodes is in there, maybe from conventional Washington, some other people as well. And I'm thrilled to see the Marine Elliot Ackerman in there with Stravitas writing my book of the summer. And Elliot Ackerman makes no bones about it. We are a nation preoccupied. We are a nation in fatigue. How tired is America? Well, it's, it's appropriate in some ways that we're seeing this messy, chaotic, in many ways tragic withdrawal from Afghanistan right as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is approaching. As all of us who remember it know, it was such a cataclysmic event for American politics, for American foreign policy, and it really shaped the way we used our power in the world, the way we thought about the rest of the world for so long. And in some ways that had seemed to really drop out of the foreign policy conversation in the last few years in Afghanistan and what we're seeing now, the scenes from Kabul are really a reminder of just how much it has changed the world, just how right. much it has changed the sense of American power in ourselves. There's so many ways to go here. Stravitas's essay of a few days ago in Time magazine, what Zakaria wrote in the Washington uh, Post, and to me the exhaustion is an exhaustion of theory or belief. In putting this edition together of foreign affairs, could you discover a modern American foreign policy theory? Does it exist? Well, if, if there's a theory or a tendency, it may be one of overreach and, and hubris and these kind of maximalist goals that are eventually walked back in time. If you remember back to the days after 9-11 
and the declarations coming from President Bush at the time, but from lots of others about the agenda we had in the world and the way we were going to achieve this ultimate victory in the war on terror and transform the Middle East and transform our own society. Um, all of those goals look uh, so fanciful in retrospect. And what we've come out of, if, if we look back at this period, as you see in these essays, is something that in some ways is would be surprising if you go back to the days after 9-11. We haven't seen the kind of you know mass casualty terrorist attacks in the United States that most people thought would come uh, repeatedly after 9-11. And that in some ways is an achievement, but look at all the, the costs that have come with it. You see in Elliot Ackerman's essay, the one you mentioned, uh, just how much it has affected American service members and the American military and American power. You see in Ben Rhodes' essay, uh, just how much it has changed American foreign policy. So we can, in some ways, look at certain kinds of achievements and certain kinds of victories of American policy in that period. But if you look at the the declarations and ambitions that we had in those days right after 9-11, uh, what we've had to pay for those those achievements is really staggering. And there's also the question of how the concept of the war on terror has changed amid a changing world. What do uh, some of the expert uh, writers weigh in on that front? Well, one of, the, one of the most striking things about the Afghanistan withdrawal, which I think is a, a theme that runs through a lot of these essays, we closed the issue, of course, before we saw what was going to happen this week, but most of the writers really anticipated what this outcome was going to look like, is this moment when the United States is trying to balance uh, goals in the war on terror and, and the kinds of considerations that drove us into Afghanistan in the first place and that kept us there for, for 20 years against what are seen as the kind of challenges of our day. China, technology, you know, great power competition. That's what people in the national security and foreign policy worlds are talking about now. But as you see in these essays, the response to the war on terror has shaped even the way we think about some of the, these great challenges today. So even as it's, it's passed out of the kind of core of American foreign policy concerns in many ways, at least before Afghanistan uh, became the, the headline story of the day, uh, it really has shaped the way we think about the world and about our own power. As we uh, discussed this morning, the idea of top-level officials in the United States meeting with Taliban uh, officials, the idea here of the legitimacy of groups previously designated as terrorist organizations, how much are we at risk in the Western world, generally at risk, from terror threats in Afghanistan, where we have that much less visibility on the ground? That, that is the, the big question of the day, and it's one we just don't know. You know uh, Bill Burns, the CIA director who, as you, you alluded to, was meeting with the Taliban leadership in Kabul yesterday, a really extraordinary meeting given the, the history of these past years. Uh, he, he has said very, very explicitly that we're going to face some more uncertainty and some more risk. But something that I, that I really liked in one of the essays that we published by Dan Byman, you know, we talked for a long time about stamping out evil and stamping out terrorism everywhere. And what, what Dan Byman points out in his essay is that we've come up with what he calls a good enough doctrine, where we accept a degree of risk. We accept that the United States is not going to go out and destroy every terrorist or every terrorist group everywhere, but that we can create enough protections that there should be defenses, at least against the kind of large attacks that we worried about in the aftermath of 9-11. So in the, the wake of years in which we talked about these grand victories and stamping out evil and all of that uh, really grand, ambitious rhetoric, we're settling for something much murkier and there will be a degree of risk and uncertainty as part of that.
And Dan, I saw Emma Ashford's essay on strategies of restraint as kind of an extension of that. I mean, 20 years post 9-11, once we're out of both Afghanistan and, of course, been out of Iraq, are we looking at a United States that is more restrained going forward? Absolutely. I think it's undeniable that all parts of the political spectrum have become much more attentive to limits on our power after a period in which there was broad agreement, if you remember those years after 9-11, about using American power, using the American military in these fairly expansive ways all over the world. Uh, people all over the political spectrum are much more hesitant about using that kind of power now. And we may be at, you know, there's always a sort of pendulum in American foreign policy between these uh, relatively ambitious uses of power and these this sense of restraint. It may be that we're at uh, uh, one far extreme of the pendulum and we're about to see it swing back because this, what we see in Afghanistan, is a reminder that there are costs to restraint as well, just as there are, are costs to ambition and overreach. And I wonder, too, if the United States is going to look internally next. There was also a great piece on from 9-11 to 1-6, January 6, talking about the domestic terror threat and far-right extremists, white supremacists. <clears throat> is that going to be the next error or area of terrorism focus? Uh, this is just an extraordinary essay by Cynthia Miller Idris, who has been studying extremism of all kinds uh, for, for, for years. And she traces the history of some of the domestic terrorist groups that we have seen uh, a threat more recently, even, even as the, the threat from Islamic terrorism started to recede a bit. Uh, she, she traces their rise through these years. And as we all know, after seeing some of the, the news events of the past, the past couple of years, this is uh, sort of the unappreciated threat that crept up on us as we were uh, focused on terrorism coming from far away. And what, what Cynthia Miller just points out in this piece is that we tend to apply some of the same frameworks. You know, this goes back to this question of how the war on terror will continue to affect the way we approach things. We apply some of the same frameworks and tools to these groups, even though it's a very, very different kind of threat. Tell me about our new isolationism. I find, uh, Dan, absolutely fascinating. And in your wonderful book on George Marshall, it was a battle of 1947 as well. What right. is the color of our, our 2025 isolationism? Well, it, it, it's a, it, it may be a little bit more subtle than that. It's not purely isolationist. It is a reaction to the perceived failures and the overreach of the years after 9-11 when we thought we could use the American military to go out and, and address threats completely, to stamp out threats completely, and to transform foreign societies. A lot of those uses, whether in Afghanistan or in Iraq or Libya, uh, have proved to be much more difficult than people expected at the time and much bloodier and much more yeah. costly than people expected at the time. At the same time, we are, as, as you know well, uh, very, very focused on this threat from China. And in some ways, there are people in Washington and the national security world who see the China threat as a thing that is going to keep us from receding into isolationism precisely because it is we don't have a, a choice. different kind of yeah. threat that is defining our, our American foreign policy. Matt Pottinger's piece in the issue is a, well, a great demonstration Daniel, of that. Daniel Cruz Phelan, thank you so much. Just uh, wonderful to begin our remembrance of September 11th with you on a Tuesday in August. Foreign Affairs, who won the war on terror. Can't say enough about it. Some very controversial essays there uh, to give a perspective. And as uh, Dr. Chris Phelan said, particularly with all that's going on in Afghanistan.
this is a joy because if you're at 60,000 feet, you've got to keep your eyes in the ground. Alan Ruskin has made a career of that. And working with David Folkert's Landau at Deutsche Bank publishes the most interesting and twisted literature. In this time of our paranoias, our worries, our angst about inflation and such, Good to catch up with the chief international strategist of Deutsche Bank. Alan, Folkert's Landau and the team worry about German inflation. They talk about the tail risks. What is your tail risk in the Q4? I think uh, inflation globally is uh, very much the tail risk. I think the markets have taken a very sanguine view that, uh, particularly in the US, the Federal Reserve is going to be correct, that uh, a lot of the inflation forces are, in fact, transitory. But uh, the possibility that they're wrong and the consequences, if they're wrong, are enormous. So I would say that, you know, in terms of macro risk, uh, this is one of the most elevated uh, right. risks out there and, uh, and, and is much more important as a concern than macro risks we've had for quite some time, certainly since COVID's broken. The theme from last week's angst to this week's celebration can be institutions changing. Arguably, Keynes, when the facts change, I change. China came to the rescue with a dialogue of accommodation by their central bank. Do you assume other institutions will do the same thing under angst? They'll just solve the problem for us? No, I think I think the problems tend to be quite localized and need uh, local solutions. The U.S. economy is just too big to be able to rely on other uh, central banks solving its problems. I think, uh, Tom, you're right to point out that there's this, been this dichotomy, really, between uh, risks associated with China and optimism essentially uh, related to the US. And I think you see this in terms of the schism we've, we, we've seen in terms of the Chinese stock market and the US stock market, uh, which is having you know, broad ramifications in you know, markets that I cover most closely, the currency market in particular. So you know, I think there's something you've got to watch for, but I think China can make things easier for global markets, absolutely. Uh, it uh, has enormous influence, but uh, if it's, U.S. problems like inflation, for example, the Federal Reserve is going to have to solve that one. Alan, I'm curious going forward about how consistent it is for a higher inflationary regime and then to see bears become bulls, bulls become even bigger bulls when it comes to equities, particularly in the United States. Is there an inconsistency here? Well, I think there are a lot of... Uh, bond bears out there. And they've had a very hard time uh, since pretty much the end of the first quarter. Uh, most of them have capitulated at this point in time. I think there's an acceptance that if the 10-year yield is going to trade at something like one and a quarter percent, it's going to be very hard to tell a story that's particularly negative as far as uh, US equities are concerned. Unlike in the Trump era, when you were getting hit by trade-related issues, every now and then creating clean outs and buy and you know, buy, buy the dip opportunities. You don't have that this time around. So uh, you've got to have other features that create clean outs. And obviously the inflation story has been part of it. But even there, the market's taking a very benign uh, look at uh, the Fed. If you look at what's priced in through the end of 2024, it's less than 100 basis points of tightening. That's nothing in the grand scheme of uh, you know Fed's tightening cycles. So the market's taken a very benign 
uh, look at things, but obviously the back end of the bond market, I think, is creating the backdrop for very solid equity market and very solid U.S. risk. The S&P is up more than 20 percent year to date. Last year, 16 percent. The year before, 29 percent. How much longer can we continue with these kinds of incredible returns? Um, look, you'd expect the returns to slow down, but I think what you're, you're saying there as well is that there are a lot of participants who've got into this equity market at relatively good levels, and they're not going to get shaken out by something that's willy-nilly. They're going to have to have some big macro story out there. Um, you know, the most obvious one is what, the one we've been speaking about, which is that inflation is not as benign as the Fed would make us believe. The Fed has to jump in uh, and uh, generate some more aggressive tightening going forward, particularly into 2022. That would be the kind of story that would upset the apple cart. But you know, right now, um, you know, if you look at if China is you know, going to go through a phase where it's not actually generating huge amounts of international volatility, then the U.S. is not going to be the instigator of that. As I said, not whilst the bond markets this well behaved and not while expectations in the Fed are this benign. Something else that could upset the apple cart, at least for some of those more richly valued stocks, would be, in theory, higher yields if they do ever materialize. Do you expect them to materialize in the near term? I don't think necessarily in the near term. I think there have been some fortunate features behind this bond market uh, rally. The most obvious one is that the Treasury has been issuing far less in the way of paper, mm. primarily because they've run down their cash balances at the Fed from you know, approaching so 1.6 trillion in February down to close to 300 billion now. So that's 1.3 trillion uh, that they've avoided uh, in terms of issuance because they've run down their cash balances. So that lack of supply in combination with what the Fed does in terms of quantitative easing has created a very favorable demand and supply dynamic. Mm -hmm. That demand and supply dynamic probably deteriorates, but it deteriorates slowly. And therefore, I think the pressure will be for higher yields, but it's going to be much slower than certainly I was anticipating back in quarter one. And it wasn't just you. That was the consensus call coming into 2021. Yields would be higher. The other consensus call was the dollar would be weaker, and yet that too hasn't really materialized. Can you make a case for dollar weakness in this moment? I don't think right now, it's, I think you'd make a better case for buying do the dollar dip, as it were. Um, I think the dollar is fortunate in terms of uh, where the smile dynamic uh, is playing out at the moment. I think you have, on the one hand, if risk looks okay, particularly US risk looks okay, then the tapering story is still at play. That's helpful for the dollar against G4 currencies. If on the other hand, you have international worries like we've recently had uh, in China, then you see uh, you know, risk off commodity prices coming off and the dollar does well against commodity currencies. So on both sides of the smile, the dollar does pretty well. So I think uh, in, right now that smile, those tails as it were on the smile, uh, are on balance, I think, more helpful for the dollar than hurting the dollar. Alan Ruskin, thank you so much. With Deutsche Bank, their chief international uh, strategist. Joining wow. us now, someone who's fluent in Thailand, <laughs> uh, in Thai, Sarah Malik joins us right now from Nuveen, their chief investment officer. Sarah, I love, love, love your research note. It's clear, it's crisp, it's sharp. What's the single distinction in your note that's an optimistic note? Well, 
We'll start with one slightly pessimistic note, which is that disagreement between the bond market and the stock market recently, including right. yesterday. But really, what we think is the stock market's looking for a silver, some silver linings for three key reasons. One is we expect to see some good economic data this week, not only with PMIs, but in consumer confidence. Also, look at vaccination rates. They're up quite significantly in August versus July. And we think in the U.S., the Delta variant is peaking. All of that together, we think, is the positive that the stock market is now leaning into. We expect volatility around some of the Jackson Hole and back-to-school uncertainty around the variant. But soon the page is going to turn to 2022. High single-digit earnings growth, that's not a bear market. It's not a recession. That's a type of market that can put up, put up strong returns, not as strong as this year and last year, but still strong positive returns going forward based on that earnings growth. So how big of a bull, sir, are you? You know, we're fairly bullish over the we're pretty bullish over the medium term. Shorter term, we think there will be volatility. There could be more of a trading range, even a buying opportunity as the market adjusts to tapering. But hold on if you a look second. At, for, I'm sorry, Sarah. When I hear this, everyone's like there could be volatility, which means buying opportunity. No one says there could be volatility, which brings gloom and doom and actually will threaten our returns in any meaningful way. I mean, is that a contrarian indicator that concerns you? I mean, you know, when we're thinking doom and gloom, this is a longer term structural issue with the economy. Um, you know, something that we saw where there was a bubble or uh, inflation is so high that we're going to go into a proper recession. Volatility we see coming up would be short term. This is more like 2013. The market adjusts to tapering. You see downside of maybe five to 10 percent. You know, it's going to be very short term market timing in that kind of environment. That's a loser's game. We think that's where you need to step in and buy. You can even see with China here, we were looking at something like Las Vegas Sands just recently. It's trading back at March 2020 lows. You saw what happened last night. You know, these when we see that kind of downside, it's very quick to rebound when it's not based on um, long-term structural issues. And we don't think the downside that you see in a around the tapering will be long-term structural for the economy. So I'm wondering what specifically would be on your shopping list in that when you look at some of the reopening trades, for example, they are already well off of the highs we saw earlier this year. And we saw a money manager over at Morgan Stanley in an interview with Bloomberg yesterday saying you need to buy those reopening trades before it's too late. Do you agree with that? Now, we're more interested in stocks that have a couple of things going for them. One is pricing power because we think there is some permanence to inflation going forward. And second is you need to look at companies. We're looking at decade high margins for many companies who also has that pricing power to overcome the uh, margins so they can mm -hmm. continue to expand them or at least preserve them from here. We like small caps, actually. I heard that one of the prior uh, speakers was saying they don't like small caps for us. They're trading back at uh, a discount to large caps that we saw in September 2020. Uh, right. Looking at January this year, they're at some of the lows. Um, they're tied to higher inflation and higher interest rates. We like industrials. Yeah. We think infrastructure spending will be positive for them. And as that economic growth continues, positive for industrials. Right. Sarah, the heritage of Nuveen of Chicago is that of clipping coupons. I mean, what they did in municipal, as I was explaining this to someone uh, last night with a beverage of my choice in my hand, that Nuveen invented, codified the clipping of coupons. Can I clip dividend growth? I mean, is dividend growth so entrenched that Nuveen has the courage to say it's a 10 or 20 year trend? If you look at dividend growers, um, you know, and that's the important thing that they're companies that are so financially strong that they can continue to grow their dividends. They actually tend to perform well, not only in defensive markets, but in periods of higher rates, higher inflation, and in periods of volatility. These have, this has been a great segment of the equity market for investors who are focused on income because they have that sweet spot, the combination of not only nice yields to go along with the fundamentally strong companies that can continue to increase their dividends. Sarah, are high bonds still a leading indicator for equities? 
You know, right now, I think what we're seeing is they're going in two different directions. We've seen that with widening uh, credit spreads. We're also seeing that with the 10-year that is not matching this, the optimism of the stock market. And the question is, you know, who will win over time? Our view is that economic data is going to be what really is the key winner to this battle. And we agree with the stock market. Uh, you know, we think earnings growth, not valuations, will drive markets higher next year. And that high single-digit earnings growth that we expect can give us what is typically the third year of positive returns post a recession. It's usually not as strong as mm -hmm. what you see in the first couple of years, but it still is positive. Yep. You know, even through a taper tantrum, if the yield curve doesn't flatten or invert, we think that'll be what um, remains positive for the markets and takes it higher uh, after this period of volatility. Sarah Malik, thank you so much. With Naveen, the Chief Investment Officer of Global Equities. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.